0: Some of the women who have read the book said, "Wow, they, you know, I want to be this kind of woman. You know, they make me feel like things are possible." And that's why we need to read them. We need to hear from what happened in the past so we know what's, you know, possible in the future.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Today we go back in time to hear the stories of several women who have become heroines of the faith. Author Jamie Janos will tell us their stories. I'm glad you're listening. Each week at this time, we have the opportunity to tell the stories of people whose lives have been transformed by Christ and marked by service to His kingdom. If you ever miss an installment of this weekly conversation, you can always visit the archive found at FirstPersonInterview.com or use our smartphone tablet app to stream or even download any program for listening at your convenience. Download the free app by searching for First Person Interview in your app store. Our guest, Jamie Janos, is the author of When Others Shuddered, telling the remarkable stories of eight women in history who refused to give up. As the conversation unfolded, Jamie and I began talking about why she chose to write about these particular women.
0: I have a great many um, women of faith I admire, but they do tend to be personal women, women I know in my own life, and not as often women of history. Um, The ones I know historically are a handful, and so I did. I set out to discover a few women that maybe not as much was written about, but yet they played a very substantial and long-lasting role. Um, their effects of what they did are still evident today.
1: Yeah. As I read these profiles that you've written about in your book, they're very dramatic stories. Yes. They're wonderful stories that, you know, again, I knew very little about, and I suspect most people don't know these stories. Are they lost to time? How did we lose track of them?
0: Well, it was interesting. Um, Several of the women wrote autobiographies, but they weren't best sellers. And very often their names, if you find them in history, are mentioned in a sentence or two. It just wasn't um, typical of the time that late 1800s, early 1900s, that women were noted for what they were doing. They tended to be behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so um, you didn't always see them in the spotlight as much as perhaps their husbands or the men they worked alongside.
1: Yeah. Well, let's take Fanny Crosby, for example. If you were to ask me, and I suspect this is true most people, what do you know about Fanny Crosby? I'd say, well, she wrote a lot of Mm -hmm. hymns that we've sung through the years, and she was blind. Uh, That's what I know about Fanny Crosby. But there's so much more that you've dug through the files, and you have found out about this amazing woman.
0: She is amazing, and she also wrote about herself. All I knew about her was really exactly what you said, that she played hymns. My dad was a a piano player at our church, and I sang her hymns from when I was a very young girl. She wrote hundreds and hundreds of hymns, so many that she had to take a pseudonym, uh, many pseudonyms, because they were afraid people would get tired of seeing her name. I Uh, didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) But she was blind from infancy. It was the result of a mistake a doctor made in trying to treat an infection. Um, But she had this really positive spirit and faith in God and belief that she could do much more. Than what people thought, so she went on to pursue education. She left for New York at a young age to in this kind of experimental school for blind children, um, and really kind of grew up there.
1: Yeah, which probably wasn't even ordinary in her time. No, for that to happen for a woman. Right. To receive that kind of education, is that Yeah, correct?
0: women getting education at all was brand new, and certainly um, schools like this for the blind were brand new. And her mom had to send her away to the big city, you know, as a young girl and a blind girl. Um, I was asking someone, they didn't even use canes at that time. Um, blind people were totally dependent on holding on to someone to get around. So she had no freedom at all in that regard.
1: Where did you go to find these stories about people like Fanny Crosby?
0: Well, I dig. One thing would lead to another. And like I said, I was blessed that many of them did write autobiographies. Um, And so I was able to look at those. And now with the Internet, you can actually go on and read some of these and see the original um, manuscripts, which is exciting, Mm -hmm. you know, to hear their own words.
1: Well, I won't ask you more about Fannie Crosby because it's in the book, and I yep. want listeners to get the book and and to read uh, these stories for themselves. But who are some of the other women? Now, how many do you uh, tell their stories in this book?
0: I have eight women, and they were all kind of framed around that turn-of-the-century time
1: period. And why that time period?
0: Well, I began looking at urban Chicago, um, where I work at Moody Bible Institute, and I was interested—Moody was founded in 1886— Um, And also um, the Chicago Fire was right around that time, just earlier, and then right afterward was the World's Fair. Mm -hmm. So a lot was happening in Chicago at that time, and I was curious to know what the role of women was like and what they were doing on behalf of the church.
1: So you were centering on Chicago, not necessarily Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, but... The name D.L. Moody keeps popping up in this book, I noticed. It
0: does. He was this big mover and shaker at the time. So he was around, and he was coming alongside a lot of different ministries. And so you do see his name popping up continuously. I I was kind of amused by it because it would be mentioned like he was a family friend. He was over for breakfast, or he was at their table. And I thought, (laughs) wow, there he is again. So um, he was um, coming alongside, and he was a champion of women at that time.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Um of course, Emma Dreyer is written about in your book, and mm-hmm. we know about Emma a little bit more about her because of the biographies of Moody and yes. the part that she played in prodding him and encouraging him to start Moody Bible Institute. But mm-hmm. that's an illustration of the fact that Behind every good man is a, is a woman, right? Exactly.
0: They even had to have a little bit of argumentation in there. Um, she was feisty. So, yeah, you, you don't always hear that side of the story. So uh-huh. those are the stories that intrigued me a bit.
1: Again, I want people to read that part of the book. Mm-hmm. But what did she do? Why did Moody need to be pushed by Emma Dreyer?
0: She was a school teacher by trade and very, um, a little bit rigid, some people said. She was an organizer, meticulous, detailed. Moody was a big picture guy. You know, he was out running around, he was evangelizing in one city while he was starting a school in another. And um, so she was left behind in Chicago doing the work while he was out advancing the gospel. All good things. Um, But when time came for him to come back, he decided maybe he wouldn't do it. Um, that maybe Chicago wasn't a good idea after all, which infuriated Emma. So she um, she confronted him very boldly, um, almost to the point of them shutting down their relationship. Huh. Um, but without that prodding, I think Chicago might not have happened. The Moody yeah. Bible Institute might not be here.
1: Did you develop a friendship with these women as you wrote about them? I mean, I can, I I can see the look on your yeah. face right now as you talk about them.
0: I did. I really felt like um, that was one of my goals was to get to know them as women and not just as historical facts. I wanted to know... The the things that um, drive women's lives, their, you know, their relationships with their loved ones, their husbands, their children, their illnesses, their weakness. Um, I wanted those things in the book and not just the facts. So I did. I fell in love with each one.
1: Yeah. You mentioned weakness. I noticed that's another thread that runs through many of these stories, not necessarily all of them, but some of them Overcame great weakness and ill health uh, to right. accomplish great things. How do you account for that?
0: Yeah, um, at a
1: time when medicine wasn't nearly true. what it is now. So.
0: Yeah, very often their illnesses were life-threatening. Um, and certainly um, long-lasting. I know Nettie McCormick, who is a very wealthy philanthropist, lost her hearing for a great number of years and carried one of those little horns that she would hold up to help her hear people. Mm. Um, but it didn't seem to stop them, and I think that was encouraging to me, to know that, yeah, they weren't superheroes. These weren't women that just could conquer all without a flinch. They had difficult times. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that that is good to know because we, too, face those things.
1: You mentioned your friend Nettie. Nettie mm-hmm. McCormick was married to Cyrus, yes, the inventor of the, the Reaper, Reaper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so they became very rich because of that.
0: Exactly. He was wealthy to begin with and became only wealthier. Um, he was 25 years older than her um, when they married, and so she then became a young widow as well, and a very, very wealthy young widow um, involved in the business, but believed that money was not an end of itself and really was determined to see it spent for God and To see it spent well.
1: Didn't I read that you've discovered she was among the richest women in the city of Chicago? She was.
0: She was. At one time, they called her the wealthiest woman of Chicago. And some of the buildings that they owned are still here today. And, of course, their legacy is all over Chicago.
1: But her legacy, again, is a spiritual legacy. Because?
0: Because she really believed um, that God's work was more important. Um, There were even times when, you know, and she had mansions, she had very expensive homes, but there was a scene that I found where she was fingering curtains and they wanted her to replace them in their mansion, and she said, you know, God's there's something else we could do with this money. You know, she constantly felt like money is power, yes, but it's also in God's hands. Mm -hmm. And so she left an imprint of faith um, internationally from that money.
1: That's the other thing about these profiles you've written about, is you've got Nettie McCormick, who was so rich, and you've got others who were, they had practically nothing. Exactly. And yet they're still notable and remembered for what they accomplished for God.
0: Right. It. You know, I was looking at women of great diversity. So I had women who were very, very wealthy, very, very poor. I had women that were happy in love and women who were not so lucky in love, Mm -hmm. childless, Mm -hmm. mothers.
1: um, Yeah, who was single in this group?
0: Yeah, Emma Dreyer was single. She never married. Most of them were married. I believe Evangeline Booth was also single and very committed to being single. Mm -hmm. She was um, the daughter of the founders of the Salvation Army decided at a young age, even though she had multiple proposals with her father, that she was better off single because she could do more work. And she, that just spoke of Evangeline. She was very dramatic, um, very How's, determined. How so?
1: What, what did you find about her?
0: She would go and act out plays as a young girl. And one time she wanted to reach the poor children in London and growing up. And so she set up a doll hospital where she would have little children bring their dolls to be fixed. And she would preach to them while they were there. So she, she felt like she could use all these dramatic ways and very... Kind of loud, crazy ways sometimes to bring people to God.
1: Mm-hmm. What struck you as the the thing that ties all these women together?
0: Well, my title is, you know when others shuddered, eight women who refused to give up. and and that was the that was really the pervasive link at the beginning. These were women who went into difficult situations very often, um but they refused to let that stop them and stop God's leading in their life. So all the way through, I saw that, where they could have stopped. They could have just said, you know, that's enough. I've done enough. But they didn't. And so they kept following.
1: More stories of women who refuse to give up as we talk with Jamie Janos today on First Person. I'm Ed Cannon, president of the Far East Broadcasting Company. We've produced a number of storytelling videos of God at work in the lives of FEBC listeners living in difficult circumstances. To see these videos and to be encouraged in God's Word, please visit firstpersoninterview.com and sign up for our 30-day online devotional. It's easy and there's no obligation. You will love seeing and hearing stories of people's lives being saved through the gospel message. Go to firstpersoninterview.com. My guest on First Person is Jamie Janos, and she's the author of When Others Shuddered, Eight Women Who Refused to Give Up. All right, let's talk more about the women that you write about in your book. And again, thanks for drawing us into their stories. It's amazing. I I love history. Mm -hmm. I love personalities to Mm -hmm. learn from people. And so you kind of bring this all together. Let's talk about Virginia Asher for a moment. Who is Virginia Asher? I I do not know this name.
0: She's not really all that well known. In fact, I didn't even find, I don't think, any books on her at all. Um, She was an early, early student at Moody Bible Institute um, she attended Moody's Church, grew up in Chicago, um, the daughter of immigrants. and Again,
1: this is late 1800s? Late 1800s, okay. right.
0: And um, found found the Lord and really, really wanted to serve him as a young girl. So she was involved in evangelistic outreaches, even at the World's Fair. Um, she was involved in a team of women who stood underneath the first Ferris wheel that was built for the World's Fair and handed out gospel tracts. Okay. So that was part of her outreach at the time. But as she got a little bit older and got some more experience and married, um, she became involved in the brothel district in Chicago, reaching out to what were termed fallen women, Mm -hmm. women who worked in that trade. Um, Chicago was notorious for this at the time. The World's Fair had brought all kinds of people into Chicago. You know, the population was growing like crazy.
1: Read the Devil in the White City (laughs) and you'll know what we're talking about. uh, How concurrent with the World's Fair was this serial killer who was preying on women like that.
0: Exactly. They would arrive with their suitcases looking for work, looking for opportunity, and often were met by people, the wrong types of people. Um, the other book, Sin in the Second City, talks about the brothel district. And about the church on the other side that was trying to stop human trafficking that was happening, hmm. um, we think of that as a new issue. I, I
1: know you say human trafficking, mm-hmm. we think of our our day now, and, and we're talking here about the late 1800s. Exactly, this is amazing.
0: it was a huge issue. And these these women, you know, in, in today's technology, women are able to you know have cell phones to call home or email. There was no way that women could contact. So mm-hmm. once they left home,
1: they disappeared.
0: Yeah, they disappeared off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but Virginia, an interesting thing, you know, she's this kind of quiet Bible dedicated Christian worker. And yet I see her mentioned as a friend to the brothel owners. So they were, she was called in often to pray with the women and to minister to them and to just be there for them. And she was known for her kind heart hmm. and, um, the way she loved them. Hmm. And, and that was rare because, you know, many women would not have gone into those areas of town right. at all.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think of recent graduates of Moody Bible Institute and other schools that move into the inner cities and do much the same thing today. And th- this mm-hmm. has got to be their, their predecessor, their hero.
0: It is, it is. Even
1: though we don't know her name.
0: I know. And then she started, you know, out of that ministry, she started something to shop girls, which were um, factory girls at the time, industrial workers. And so she would offer lunches and Bible studies in the cities. Many of them were too poor to bring lunches, so they would come for a simple sandwich and Bible studies. And those grew into what was called business councils. And she started Virginia Asher's um, business women's councils that grew up all over the United States. That's so they amazing. spread, yeah, from one city to the next. And by the time she died, there were thousands of these councils <laughs> where women were meeting for Bible study. We're
1: so clever today, yeah. <laughs> and here, all these things were being done.
0: I know, I know. That was one thing that astounded me. I thought, wow, they were doing a lot of this brave work then. You yeah. know, when I didn't picture women doing that type of thing.
1: Yeah. All right, we have time to talk about one more woman that you write about in your book, and it's one of my favorite, Mary McLeod Bethune. Mm-hmm. Uh, she figures very prominently, whenever you go to Washington, D.C., uh, her name is, is prominent there in the historical markers. And tell me who she is, or yes. was.
0: Well, she um, also has a college, Bethune-Cookman College University that's in Daytona Beach, Florida. Her home is there still. You can walk through it and see it. But, yeah, she was born um, the Child of Slaves, And so born into very poor, impoverished circumstances, um, gifted in education by a Quaker woman who came to her town and wanted to send um, an African-American child to school. Wasn't she the
1: only one of her siblings that got to go to school? The only
0: one. Her mom thought there was something special about her. She was outspoken. She wanted more. um, And she sensed that. So she sent Mary away to school and then another school and then eventually to Chicago to Moody. Um, where she graduated wanting to be a missionary. Um, those dreams did not work out. They were dashed for her. She was turned down by a missions agency.
1: She wanted to go to Africa. She
0: wanted to go to Africa more As than As an anything. African-American
1: woman who grew up just outside of slavery, her parents had been slaves, she wanted to go to Africa. And she that had to be devastating when she was turned down. She
0: was turned down. And and everybody thinks, you know, there's uh, the paperwork on it is not clear, but everybody assumes this was a racial Um, Issue at the Mm -hmm. time. You know, of course, discrimination was thick at at that point. And so she went south instead. She resolved in her heart that wasn't going to stop her. So she went to Florida and started a little tiny school to teach other girls like herself how to read and write.
1: Okay. So Um, this is after her moody education. After Moody. She goes to Florida, she sets up a school. Mm-hmm. Did she have benefactors? How did she pay for that?
0: She scraped and got things out of trash bins and set up this little tiny um, hut she paid down on a lot with hardly any money. And she went up to, she would go up to very wealthy people and ask them to support her. And one man came back um, to her, she'd asked him to be a trustee. So he came to visit her school, which was really a hutch with some crates in it. And he said, where is the school you want me to be the trustee of? And she said, it's here. It's in my heart. <laughs> um, and he was floored. So he signed a check. So people believed in her because she had great vision, mm-hmm. um, not because they could see evidence of it very mm-hmm. often.
1: Why is it that we've lost these stories? Why don't we know? I mean, I'm, I appreciate you doing what you've done here and turned a spotlight on them. But how, how is it that we've lost them?
0: Well, I think the stories are there. Um, they sometimes are skipped over a little bit um, or told very briefly. And maybe it's because we just haven't realized that we need them so much. Um, but I've been encouraged, you know, some of the women who have read the book said, wow, they, you know, I want to be this kind of woman. You know, mm-hmm. they make me feel like things are possible. Mm-hmm. And that's why they. we need to read them. Yeah. We need to hear from what happened in the past so we know what's you know, possible in, in the future.
1: You draw conclusions from the lives of these eight women. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the okay. some of the things that you've learned yeah. that uh, you want to pass on to readers.
0: One of the biggest takeaways for me was that these were women of prayer. Um, they really believed that God could work through them and that God could supply their needs. Um, it was kind of an admonition to me to be more of a woman of prayer and to remember to take my needs to God all the time and to believe that he can work in my life um, that's something I tend to forget, mm-hmm. and I'll confide in other people yeah, it's first. It's not limited
1: to women, by the way. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, it's true. So that was a big reminder. Um, the fact that they all experienced hardship, that, that this is a part of our life, it's not unusual. Um, if you, you know, I on my Facebook feed every day, I read of friends who are going through tough times, and I've hit, my family has gone through tough times, and yet God has been consistent. And so I think to know that you aren't alone if you go through hardship, but that God can still use you, even through difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm.
1: And they faced opposition, significant opposition, Yes, not just from society, but from from all points, didn't they?
0: Right, right. Sometimes the opposition came from very nearby, from family or from even the church and and, um, the Christian society. Um, But when you want to do great things, sometimes you're going to ruffle some feathers, um, like Emma Dreyer did or um, Bethune, where she faced um, people who did not want her to give African-Americans opportunities. Right. Um, So I think that you have to do what you know in your heart is right.
1: And I'm trying to imagine Virginia Asher walking into a brothel district Mm -hmm. in Chicago and uh, what courage that took.
0: Right. Because what would people think? Right, mm-hmm. you know, what yeah. would people think if I go there? Well, it's a nice and I'm church lady like people. you doing here. Yeah, yeah, they're going to obviously report back, but yet she she went anyway, and um, that reward is evident. Mm-hmm.
1: And then you write that they found their value in Christ. They knew mm-hmm. who they were in Christ. Boy, is that a lesson for today?
0: Right. I think, you know, especially as I looked at the women who were born slaves, I was reminded that you might look at yourself and think that, you know, I was born in poverty. I, I'm not worth much. I'm not worth much to society or to God. Or the women who went through divorce or um, were abandoned or childless, um, the same thing. You know, you can put your value in those things, and yet it's not really meant to be found there, that God valued them beyond that
1: mm-hmm.
0: for who they were.
1: What changed did this Work in you when you found out what these women did and how they uh, fulfilled their dreams through Christ.
0: Mm, it it was really an emotional response for me. I mean, I would be reading sometimes their stories and it would bring me to tears. You know, realizing the hardship that that they had gone through and yet were faithful. So it was a call for me personally, you know, to be faithful in everything and to not look at what I can't do in life, but to look at what I have been given to do each opportunity each person I interact with online, each neighbor I talk to, but what are those opportunities and how can God use me today? And so that was my challenge, really, is to pull back and to focus on that.
1: Well, there are other women who are profiled in Jamie's book we didn't have time to talk about, but you'll find additional information about the book when others shuddered at FirstPersonInterview.com. Our guest has been the author, Jamie Janos. These first-person conversations take place here each week, both on radio and online. Our website is firstpersoninterview.com, and that can be an introduction to a full archive of past programs you can stream online. Or by downloading our free smartphone app, you can either stream or download any program to play at your convenience. Look for First Person Interview in your app store. Each week, this program is made possible with the support of the Far East Broadcasting Company, who loves to have God's Word taught on the radio sign up to receive the free email devotional with insight from God's Word based on listener testimonies from around the world. Go to FirstPersonInterview.com to sign up for the free devotional or click on the FEBC banner for more information about how you can help. Next week, our series on the Gospels with Michael Card continues as we open the Gospel of Luke. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd inviting you to join us then for First Person.